All right, we are going to talk tonight and look into God's word about how we deal with sin in the church. And I want to give you a bit of a fair warning that Jesus says some seemingly harsh things in this chapter. And so I wanted to cover the whole chapter because I think it's supposed to be kind of one unit, like it's one kind of unbroken thought throughout. And I'll also just tell you that I think that the application is, is obvious, and I think that the application is uncomfortable, which you'll see what I mean by that. But it's a little more uncomfortable, maybe even than usual, because it doesn't just, it's not like you're going to have your own personal application, like I need to go do this by myself, but it's kind of a community application. So it affects like my relationship with you and you with you and you with you. So, um, but it's so good. So um, before we look at the chapter, you guys have probably heard sin defined in a number of different ways. Um, and there's a unique word that Matthew and Jesus use for sin um, in chapter 18 in several different parts that, you know, we have, there's different Greek words that we translate to sin, just like there's different Greek words for love that all come up love in our English version. Uh, but the word's a little bit unique here. So when you hear sin tonight, I want you just to picture this or, or have this understanding of sin, that sin is like a stumbling block that keeps us from faith in Jesus. So just kind of, anytime you hear sin come up, especially in the first half or so, it's like a stumbling block that keeps us from true faith in Jesus. Alright? So, the first um, six verses are kind of one little chunk. I'll read that. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, um, if y'all have been around the last few weeks, um, it'll help you to answer this question a little bit, but um, if you haven't been here, that's okay. Why do you think the disciples start at this point asking this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you might like consider some events of the past couple of chapters. Like, why does this question among them come up? Who's the greatest? Kind of this arrogant, seemingly question. I wonder if it had anything to do with two things that just happened: the transfiguration, which just Peter, James, and John. Jesus like calls them specifically. Hey, you guys, I want to show you this. He doesn't the other ones. And just a few paragraphs before that, he tells Peter specifically, he singles him out, hey, you're, you're like the dude that's going to be a rock of foundation in this church. So I wonder, maybe that plays into it too, like they're, they're comparing, well, why do these people have special privileges? 
there might be some pride. Randy talked about it a little bit last week, but even how they asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Like, why isn't that something that we were able to do? Like, it's they, they're supposed to be able to do those things. Um, and it's maybe kind of a, even a prideful question in that, like, shouldn't I be able to do this? Um, I think it's also, like, in the answer, yeah, because he talks about the humility of, of a child, right, in his answer. So that's probably a good guess. I think um, there's maybe a little bit to all of what y'all are saying. Um, but I find it interesting that the disciples, they've just recently heard from Jesus that he's going to suffer and he's going to die, but their grief is kind of cut short by their kind of, hey, who's great, like seem, a seemingly insignificant or just kind of self-focused kind of question in the midst of that. And um, it seems that they're, that they're kind of missing, again, judging by Jesus' response. They're missing what Jesus is saying in, in the recent chapters, and I think Randy pointed out last week that even though Jesus is this powerful Son of God showing his radiant glory to some, and he's just healed a boy with a demon, but he still humbly submits himself, we saw last time, to paying taxes. He still humbly submits himself to suffer and die. And it's kind of in contrast with this disciple's question, hey, who's, who's the greatest? So Jesus, he, he grabs this child, they're in Capernaum, I think, and he, so maybe it's Peter's kid who lived there, one of their kids just, okay, he pulls them in front of him, and he says to them that they should turn and become like this child. So as opposed to what, like a worldly, um, what a worldly version of greatness looks like, he says, turn and become like a child. So, if you all know children, um, children don't always act humbly, right? Like, there's pride in children that seems very much just like in adults. Um, so it's not so much how the children act that we are supposed to act, but this objective state of humility that the child is in. They are dependent on other people. They're dependent on a guardian, they're dependent on a parent. And so he's saying, be like this child, and saying, I can't get along without someone else's help, namely without Jesus' help. Like last week, Rand even pointed out, you can't do these miracles without seeking Jesus. It's Jesus who's actually accomplishing this, his power. So um, I wonder, like, just practically, if you guys have any ideas, this is one question that I couldn't come up with real clearly in my mind. Um, like, how, what would it look like for us to practically turn, like, change, kind of repent? and become like children. Like what, how can we do that? Can you think of any practical ways or like an example of that? I can think like, because a child wants to do it their way and they demand that, um, and that's kind of often, like I think I'm like that. And so practically sometimes in like even the small ways, like if I'm, we have an event and I'm like, no, 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 I can clean this up. I've got this, but then I know I have to wake up at 6 a.m. the next morning. I'm tired. i got to work the next day, all this stuff. When it's like, just humble myself. need you guys. And just say, no, I need you to help me. Like, I love to, to host this, but I need help to accomplish it. 
And I think that's kind of like a practical way of that would be good. Okay. In an honest way. Yeah. Um, I don't know how practical this is for everybody, but usually when I think of childhood faith, I imagine like the kid jumping into dad's arms and wholeheartedly trusting that he's going to catch him. Um, and for me, that's always the image I kind of get when I think of trusting the Lord and having faith. Like, yeah. I'm jumping to you, you're catching me. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think that sense of anything that kind of like scares us, children usually have a very clear lack of fear um, most of the time. And so they they don't realize, like, you're at harm or you could fall off the couch or you could break a leg or something and because um, they're trusting the people that are around them to take care of them and so for me um, trusting that the Lord is going to provide to take care of me and so it, um, practically that displays itself in finances, career waiting for whatever he's promised so yeah good <clears throat> expressing our neediness for God and his comfort and his care and maybe that's a verbal thing I, I don't Often enough, I don't think talk about how how much I, I need Christ. Like I sometimes I'm more focused on how can I like have a good um, reputation in the Christian world, or like have a good gift that other people might want, or we're kind of in like a Christian celebrity culture, right? And it's like. Is that what we desire, or do we should we be people who just say, "No, I'm I'm not all that great. I, I actually need Christ." Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about like how kids like they they don't question, like they just kind of believe. Like if you tell them something, they just believe it, you know, and, until they get to a certain age and, and they start hearing differently, and then and then like you know that changes. But like I remember my dad. Would just love to mess with me as a kid. Like I would ask him like, what are ice cream cones made out of? And my entire life I thought ice cream cones were made out of apples because my dad just was like, I'm gonna tell her this and she's like, we do you know so I think but I think like kid like kids have really strong faith in like in their parents and in and in things that they're told or that you know or that they learn when they're a kid. Like they hold on to it for a very long time. And so I think it's kinda like it could be like be like children in the sense of like don't question like I'm the, I'm the teacher, I'm the parent, and, you know, like, just trust, you know. Yeah. I think that also, um, in verse 2, this kid, Jesus called him, and so it was obedient, and went right to Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and he put him on his lap, but just being obedient to, mm -hmm. to say, you know, when Jesus has come. I think that's a thing I'm thinking about in relationship to people, but in relationship to God, I think too, just like when something goes wrong or whatever, I tend to want to run to like either one of my girlfriends or you or, you know, but it's that like running to Jesus first and thinking, how can I be dependent upon him first for whatever the issue is? It's good. I think it's interesting that he says unless you do this, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And 
that, if I was studying it right, that word never, there's like emphasis there. You never enter the kingdom of heaven if you, unless you turn and become like children. And so, in talking about the child's humility and all this, I, I think that I think that it has to do with like you can't enter the kingdom of God if your life is characterized by pride and thinking that you can do it yourself. Like that works against the essence of the gospel, which is like against your own ego and what you can provide. It's like, no, I need a savior, and so we go to Christ for it. And it's very humbling to say what we don't hear in 21st century the world now that hey I need someone else's help because the world tells us hey you can do anything the crap anything you put your mind to you can do which is like no that's that's not true at all and just how especially in America we like laud independence and you can make yourself great and you can do it but Jesus his answer to the disciples question of who's the greatest is it's the one who recognizes how little they are and how great Jesus is, like this little child who desperately needs the care of parents or guardian. And I wonder, like, is, is that type of person, like a child, is that somebody that our world accepts? Like, is that acceptable to our culture? They kind of teach against that in many ways. Some people will accept it. We have friends, even non-Christian friends, that I think appreciate um, humility when we demonstrate that. So some will receive those children, like it talks about in verse 5. And when they do, it's like they're receiving Jesus. But many will do what verse 6 goes on to say. And um, it, I kind of just picture this as the, the person that doesn't receive the one with childlike faith um, is like a person just like critiquing Christianity that hey you should you should be more self-reliant than this this is it's too sissy to uh, like this is my man's world it's too sissy to think hey you might um, you you have to depend on another person but just man up and take care of yourself and I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse six uh, when he talks about if you if you put a, a stumbling block of worldly thinking remember that word sin if you put that stumbling block of, of pride, you can do it yourself, in front of this humble believer that's just wanting to cling to Christ and not themselves, he says it's better for that person to have this huge rock fastened around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this is like some of Jesus' strongest language in the book of Matthew. I think it's because Jesus, like the whole point that we're learning is Jesus wants us to depend on him and not to depend on ourselves. He wants us to cling to him. He wants us to have faith in him and not ourselves. And so he's saying, if, if you're someone, if you're keeping somebody from that message, telling them you can do it yourselves, you should be drowned in the sea. Because there's nothing worse than something that keeps us away from faith in Jesus. So it's our message, hey, I, I want to be a Christian that everybody thinks is amazing and I've achieved some kind of Christian status? Or is our message just, I desperately need Jesus and you desperately need Jesus, just like a little child? Like, are we wanting to show our greatness or are we wanting to show Jesus' greatness? Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin or for, or for these stumbling blocks they put between us and Jesus. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye 
than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now Jesus, just like in Matthew 5, he says something different or something very similar, but Jesus, is, he's kind of speaking in hyperbole here, right? Like, he, like maybe he's not actually requiring that we cut out our eyes or cut off our limbs. Um, but the point is he's saying we need to take drastic measures to stop getting tripped up by these stumbling blocks of sin. And you wonder, well, why would he use such harsh hyperbole as cutting off our limbs? But if you remember, once again, it's, it's those stumbling blocks that keep us from faith in Jesus, the most important thing. So there's nothing worse than those things that keep us from that faith. So cut it off, tear out your eyeball, whatever it takes to get rid of these things that are tripping up you or that are causing you to trip up other people to where well, you should just be tossed into the sea. I think it's interesting. I was just talking to a guy um, a couple weeks ago that was really bothered by this passage because he was saying, well, Jesus would never like say something that uh, extreme, like you should chop off your arm or whatever. And it's like, this is, that's extreme, yeah. But a chapter and a half ago, he just said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which we mentioned to the disciples, that meant death by crucifixion. So this is not like quite as extreme as, as dying, but um, still we're dealing with sin in a very serious fashion. Verse 10. Sorry, I'm moving quickly, but I, the, the end is where I wanted to spend time today. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, by the way, little ones, again, these people that are coming to Jesus by faith, not trusting in themselves, don't despise them. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Not even going to try to explain it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you can read about that on your own time. I'm also not going to explain why you don't see it in verse 11 in your Bibles. <laughs> but if we want to talk about it afterwards, I, there's I a little bit of understanding on that. What do you think? Verse 12 says... If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any that, that one of these little ones should perish. Here's what's going on in really the, from verse 6 to 14 here. Jesus is expressing the Father's zeal and fervor for his children. The Father and the Son, they care intensely about all those who are coming to God with the faith of a child. Here's what, how I see that in here. This is how much God cares about his children, what Matthew, what Jesus is trying to explain. Jesus says, I don't care about who seems the greatest. I'm concerned about the least. I'm concerned about the children. Jesus says, if anyone gets in between us, it would be better for them to drown because he cares about them. Jesus says, I so want to give you life. I so want you to come to me and find life in me that you should cut out anything in your life, anything that hinders your your uh, communion with me, including your body parts. Cut it all out because I love you so much. The, the Father we see here in, in verse 10 through 14, 
he has many sheep, but he loves each one so much that if one goes astray, he'll go after that one sheep out of however many millions or whatever Christians there are now and have been over history. He'll go after that one sheep in love for them and then rejoices if they come back to the fold. He loves them that much. So it's like nothing should... The, the Father, Jesus, desires that nothing should block this relationship that he has with his children. Nothing is more important. He's saying, don't you dare put anything in the way of me and my children. Verse 14, so it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So I think that's, that's what Jesus is doing a little bit. He's explaining the Father's heart for his children. So now, like, now is the part that we'll, we'll get real specific, kind of transitions into some very specific ways that we should live. Um, and really, these are expressing the same heart of the Father that I was just talking about, who loves his children so much. And from verse 15, where we're at, to the end of the chapter, which we're not going to talk in a lot of detail about, especially um, the parable of the unforgiving servant, but y'all, I think that if we could practice well these, these next two sections from 15 on, like our community together, even if it's 15 of us, if it's 200 of us, will be like shockingly and outlandishly beautiful if we can do these things well. But this is also the part that gets uncomfortable as if tearing out your eye isn't unhelpful. So, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a heathen and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So not only do we not want to cause somebody to stumble into sin, but we are to go after those who have stumbled into sin. Just like the father goes after the sheep who has gone astray. Again, we're kind of matching what the character of God is, and that's what we're called to. Now, this section, it seems, because it uses the word brother, it talks about the church. This is like within the believing community we're not like the sin police that go around to everybody and point out all of their sin, people that aren't part of this community of faith, non-believers. Um, but we are absolutely, I'm convinced, we are absolutely called to reprove and correct and rebuke one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this isn't the only place that says it. Galatians 6 talks about it. Luke 17 talks about it. 2 Thessalonians talks about it. James 5, even earlier in Matthew chapter 7. And from what I've experienced in the churches that I've been a part of, 
the contemporary church sucks at enacting verses 15 through 20. I don't know if you all have like it's experienced similar things, but I'm so excited to see what happens if we would together pursue this, as we already have in ways that I've seen. But so it starts out and it says, if your brother sins. You can't rebuke somebody because they annoy you or because they've done something that you don't like or whatever. Like, that's, that doesn't count. If your brother sins, it would be a good idea. I think it's really good advice I heard one time. If you're going to confront somebody on their sin, make sure that you can speak precisely of, about their sin. I think we read that even in a counseling class. Like, you want to maybe be able to give example or, or, or just say clearly, here's what I've seen in your life and here's what I see in Scripture and why the two aren't lining up. So it's not just that I just kind of have this feeling about you and um, I think that you need to turn from your sin. Just be specific. So there's um, a process of restoration that um, Jesus talks about here. What would you say is step one? in the process of restoration. Discerning the sin. Good, Cameron. What else is it? That's right. That was my comment there. Um, so in verse 15, like, what's the first thing you do? If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Him. Tell him. This only applies to men, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Especially her. <laughs> Go and tell him his fault. Now, I wonder when the last time y'all have done this. Like, don't maybe say it out loud, but. Or I wonder, like, have, have you ever done this at all? In, in a manner of love and gentleness. Like, we, we love to spout out some passive-aggressive here's what's wrong with you, but um, go and tell him his fault. Or do you usually buy into the lie I've done this, that it's none of my business? I just want clarification. If yeah. it's against you, so um, is that that would be um, it's pretty yeah. obvious that it's somebody your business versus going and telling him his sin just in general. Yeah. So Luke um, also has this passage, Luke 17. Um, and in Luke, it just says if a brother sins, he doesn't have the against you. And um, not to get too crazy on you, but that against you is in the, yeah. this was news to me in my study in the earliest and most reliable transcripts is not in there. Like it may have been a scribal edition. So if you look at, I think, NIV and the Net Bible and the New American Standard, I don't think they have against you. Does anybody have NIV? I will in two seconds. Yeah. Okay. That was more like loss. Yeah. I've oftentimes said what well, has to be against you in order for you to confront them. But I mean, the Galatians doesn't say get you, but I was thinking yeah. it specifically. What's up? Um, I just have a question. It, even with the against you, it, which you is it? Is it you or is it like the y'all? 
Oh, singular or plural? Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be you because it was if you're, so it's just continuing the correct grammar. Yeah, 90% yeah. sure it's singular, singular, but I, singular. I don't have okay. my stuff. It doesn't have against you and then I So anyway, yeah, go ahead. Do, you, do they do that? Because it's like, well, we know in Luke it doesn't have it, and this one that has it, so they didn't think that was a big deal? We gotta understand that. If, let's talk about it afterwards because we've got to like okay. move right, along. Right now. But there's. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, that's fine. It's. Yeah. Um, so go and tell him his fault. <laughs> Y'all, I think that this purposely comes right after the parable of the lost sheep. Because we're doing this with the understanding that God cares fervently and zealously for his children to be right with him and to not have stumbling blocks in the way. And our goal in this whole section is to, like the Father does, is to bring somebody back into the fold. So, like, we, we tell him or her their fault. Um, Nobody likes to receive that. I don't even have to say that. But if you care about enough about somebody, you'll do it. Galatians 6, which you mentioned, um, talks about doing this kind of thing in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, uh, We could say in, also in love. Um, there's plenty of ways we can talk about this. But bottom line, that's the first step. And look at what's the next phrase say? Go and tell him his fault. What? In ESV. Um, Between... Between you and him alone. What was that? Say it again. Between you and him alone. Everybody together now. Between, Between you and him alone. alone. Between you and him alone. Why did I do that? What do you think that means? Usually bring a crew with you. Or like right here, like how oh, cheery. Yeah, yeah, or they're the last person to find out. Yeah. When you finally, okay, I'm going to finally confront them. Because <laughs> it's easy to think, I need to go somebody else for counsel and know what to do. And so now I've brought a third person into yeah. it. Or, I've got this before, I need to go tell the pastor and then he can confront them on this sin. Right? Like, you do it. But it's pretty, like, I don't think it can get much clearer. Go and tell him his fault between you and him. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Oh, average, everyday Christian, you do this. <laughs> and because of this, I hope that, like, as, as one of the leaders here of this church, I hope that most of the sin that goes on in this church, I never hear about. I think that would be really good and healthy if it's because we're doing this here. And step one then leads to restoration. And I hope that like I hope that I have demonstrated and I hope Mary Beth has demonstrated. I know you have and sometimes like somebody will come to us and start explaining something and we'll tell you, yeah, you go and talk to them. This is this is between you and them. If they don't respond then you know we can talk about what's the next step. So don't just talk about someone else's sin. If you care enough about them, actually go talk to them about it. And the pattern here as we work down is to tell as few people as possible. You'll see in the next step it's a couple more, and the next step it's a lot more. So if if he listens, yes. We we've won our brother, or I would say just like the shepherd who finds the sheep, we rejoice. They've been restored, right? If they don't, 
respond well to that if they do not listen. We go to step two. What's step two? Bring one or two others with the view. Awesome. What was yours, Cameron? Talk more about it? Gossip about them. Tell everyone. Take one or two with you. So if you have the person who's sinning, you have the original person who's confronting them about it, and then you have one or two other people, that makes three or four people. Three or four. That's half of our church. <laughs> um, just, just so y'all know, this is like some of the reason why we kind of said, hey, three or four would be a good number for some smaller groups. Not that all of the confrontation within this church has to happen within our three or four groups, but um, but there's there's something to, hey, there's not just this one person that's validating the. Um, not validating, but confirming the authenticity of the sin, but there's um, one or two other people in addition to that person. And there's a principle kind of throughout Scripture we won't talk about tonight, but it starts back in Deuteronomy 19 that just says, hey, truth within God's people is not established by one person. I mean, unless you're talking about God, but one person, no, it, it takes the witness of two or three people, and in those two or three people, then there's strength. And so... If he listens to that, again, it doesn't say that, but I think you can insinuate that. Great. If he doesn't listen to that, what's step three? Tell it to the church. Has anybody ever seen that happen in the churches? You have, Cameron, you have, you don't have to like explain it. I've seen it one time. That's it. I actually haven't seen this step. I've seen step four, the next one, where they're like. Yes, that's But I haven't seen the, hey, here's. That's true. Except Mary once. That's that once. This is like all hands on deck. Um. And this is a step before step four, which is in the next half of verse 17. But this is a, I mean, this is like awkward in the church, right? And you think, it's like, would anybody actually ever do that? Um, but the hope is that we'll rejoice in the restoration of the person. So maybe the person after the whole church has been told and they are convincing this person of their sin and saying we love you, we want you to be restored to the Lord and to one another, then boom, we end up back here, we rejoice because they've been restored. If not, at least in this final step, which Cameron and I were saying, some of you maybe have seen this before, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector, uh, sinner, we would say a non-Christian excommunication. Okay. So yeah, the Catholic Church, maybe others call say excommunication. So 
treat them as if they're not a follower of Jesus because that's what in their life they're displaying. They're not willing to follow Jesus, even in this very process itself. I don't want to spend a lot of time, like, or any time really discussing, like, practically exactly what that looks like. We'll discuss it, certainly, if, if this opportunity, um, if we ever get down to this uh, step. But there's some amount of dissociation or detachment from the church. And I, I think, like, it sounds like a, a crazy thing that we, we would never see done, but it, but it is done in churches, and you think, well, gosh, would, would we really do this? Would we really obey Jesus in this? And, again, this isn't the only place that it talks about this type of thing. In 2 Thessalonians and Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 5, like, it has this same idea, this unrepentant sinner that has, that's saying, no, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but I refuse to repent. They have some kind of dissociation or discipline away from the church. And you think, well, gosh, that's so harsh. That's like, I can't, I can't believe that, that, you know, people would get into each other's business like that. But even this very last step, what is the hope in that when they lose this close community with you? Whatever that looks like specifically. What is the hope even of that final step for? That they'll see their sin and repent. That they'll see their sin and repent. And then we'll rejoice and they've been restored. So, yeah, Cam. It's funny because I've seen set four, I think, three times. And as I've thought back on it a handful of times, and I've wondered, like, if it was done well or correctly or whatever, and what I thought about was, like, I feel like step four will never be successful unless your church was a really good family or welcoming community before yeah, that because they have to have something to lose. And none of the people that I've ever seen go through step four have ever returned to the church, to my knowledge. But... Um, and part of my, my thing is like that seems like a failure on the church beforehand to be something that they actually missed or yeah. they felt like they were missing in their lives. Something that they couldn't go get elsewhere because they, um, they were getting from their church and now they lost. Because if you lose nothing besides a teaching on a Sunday mm-hmm. or something like that, then you haven't really lost a whole lot. Yeah. Well, and another thing that happens that maybe you all have seen is a church kind of goes through this process with somebody and I'm like, okay, well, I've got 30 other churches in town to choose from. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so often, though, too, I've seen, like, I have not seen it done probably exactly like this because so often it's, it's, if someone is living in sin um, and they know that people don't agree with them, they'll walk off by themselves. Like, it won't mm-hmm. be something that you have to confront them because they're, even if they have a great community, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like if you really, oh sorry, no no no, I said it doesn't get to the point where they oh, have to go yeah. because they just leave. <laughs> exactly, like they're like, yeah. well, because like if if one of us decided to really like go wholeheartedly into one sin, it'd be really hard for it for them to be in community. Like first first of all, anyways, and then so often it's and I think that's just a sign of someone who maybe a sign that they're not genuinely having the Holy Spirit, and then because that conviction isn't there, and then and maybe and then so often it's somebody who was in sin and then they confessed it and they wanted to change so like the church didn't like they they did step one two three like but for themselves because they're yeah. like 
It's I'm like gonna bring it to zero. this person. I'm gonna like that I sinned against. I'm gonna bring it to these people and I'm bring it to a larger scope because the Holy Spirit is working in them. Sometimes it takes them a long time, but generally, I mean, so often that's what I've seen with believers, which is cool, and that's why I think this is maybe. It doesn't often get down here in the... Like, I can't imagine... Like, if, if, if I didn't want to change and someone brought it to me, I'd be like, see ya. Like, right off the bat. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. So does that go why he's talking about, like, the parable of the lost sheep? Like, we're supposed to, like, go pursue them? Because a lot of times I'm just kind of like, yeah, you go here, like, Todd said, like, like, go get your sin. Mm-hmm. Like, go mm-hmm. get it and just see where it takes you, which is not going to be... Anywhere that you really want to be or go, right? Yeah. So continue to deeper, whatever. And um, but I think, or how much do you do you go after them like the lost sheep? Yeah, that's another to, like, conversation to have. Well, how do we treat a Gentile mm-hmm. tax collector? Well, we welcome into our community, and we like to, you know. So there's here's another beauty of of what I see here. And by the way, I think the lost sheep in this case, I think it's different when. Luke is talking about it to the Pharisees, I think. Um, I think this is talking about a believer who's gone astray, where Luke talks about the person who doesn't know the Lord and actually comes to know him. But anyway, but another beautiful thing Wait, about so this... You're saying we, the, the person who doesn't know the Lord, those are the people we go after, like the lost sheep, not the unrepentant believer. Well, the unrepentant believer we're considering the lost sheep doesn't know Christ. Or that's what we have to that's assume. Okay. But so here's the here's another cool thing that happens. Like the beauty of, of I think why this is how Jesus is explaining, here's a process that you can go through. Even if this person who it, it's been told to the church and they say, No, I'm still gonna be in my sin. And the church says, "Okay, we just we don't we're not considering you a part of our believing family anymore." I would argue that that's a better position for them to be in, knowing where they, knowing where they stand, or knowing what how the church is viewing their belief, as opposed to the church tricking people into thinking, "Oh yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you can just sin how you want. It doesn't matter in this community, and you think that you believe, and that's good enough." No, like that's. That's the worst. The last thing I want to do as a church is convince people that they're Christians when they're not really Christians. So this kind of has this worked into it. Hey, like it's better that you at least know that we're we're saying you're not you're not presenting yourself as as a Christian because you won't repent. And what Christians do is we repent. So there's there's tons of like practical questions that come up with this, but I I just want to tell you guys that we will carry this out in this church and I think hopefully hopefully more often than not there's like step zero that Joy was talking about where somebody realizes their sin and there doesn't even have to be a confrontation because they go and confess to this person yes this I, I've sinned against you and forgiveness takes place and we're good that's hopefully where most often where it happens but we definitely will and have seen this step one in our church tell him yourself tell her yourself and Hopefully, most of the time, it stops there. The person repents and says, yes, you're right, I see that. No, but of course, they don't like it. I don't like when I receive that information, but hopefully there's repentance that takes place, and then we're good again. And then, gosh, if, if it ever gets to, to two or three you know, people that are confronting this person, surely that's going to, like, maybe even what you were saying, Joy, surely that, I mean, the person's either going to stop or they're going to leave or something. Who knows what's going to happen? 
um, but I'm, I'm warning you guys, and I want you guys to know, if you're, if you're a part of this fellowship of believers, if you're professing to know Christ, then because we love one another and because Jesus and the Father care about his children so much, we will do this. And if you feel like that's an invasion of your privacy or if you feel like that's just that's none of everybody else's business, then, then find a church that wants to disobey Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 and be a part of that because this is, it, it doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be any outs or little caveats or um, disclaimers in this. It's not because, like, I think we should just be a church of just jerks that are just holy and trying to come across as holier than thou, but it's because Jesus, the Father, care zealously about their children and they intensely desire that nothing come in between. No sin would cause a, a stumbling between the one who wants to truly follow Jesus. So, um, so we'll do this, and I would say for the sake of each other, like, do, please, for my sake, like, speak into my life, too. Like, that's happened with Mary Beth and I. Like, we've, you know, I'm a pastor, and I've been confronted. Um, but that's good. Like, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. But that's like, no, that's what we want. We're pursuing Jesus and, and relationship with him and with each other, and it it takes some drastic, uncomfortable measures uh, at some time. So Matthew uh, 18.18 is really similar to uh, 16.19, if you want to go back and listen to that. But basically, Jesus is saying, if if you're following these principles, then, like, if the church is obeying these commands of Jesus in their heart and in their actions, then the decisions that they make carry the authority of God. Because this is how Jesus has said, this is how you're supposed to do it. So if we do it that way, again, with the same heart even, then that those decisions hold authority. It says the same type of thing in verse 19, which I won't go into, but oftentimes I think is taken out of context, but it's just a reiteration of verse 18, that in, in these judicial decisions, the, the testimony of two or three people is is firm and it's it has the stamp of approval from God. Uh, unlike one person who can so easily go astray. Um, two or, or more uh, are important in this process. Same idea in verse 20. So it seems kind of harsh, um, but remember we're displaying the God that we have who hates the sin that comes into the mix in our lives that that break up our intimate communion with him. And he says, let's get that sin out of here. And hopefully arrive at rejoicing that we we are restored to the family of God. So this last little um, parable, I'll make a couple comments just as I read through it. Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So he's referring back to what Jesus just said. If somebody sins against you, and Peter's like, okay, so they repent. Like, how often do I forgive him? As many as seven times, which, by the way, at the time, the the um, rabbis 
were known to say that you had to forgive somebody three times for the same thing, but after that you just you cut them off. There's no more forgiveness after three times. So Peter's saying, Can I, should I forgive seven times? It was actually rather like generous, like, wow, should I forgive that much? And Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or like more than you would even care to ever count. That's how often you ought to forgive. And then he tells this parable, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Um, a talent was the highest denomination of currency that they had. In the U.S., the highest that we have now is $100. But they used to have $5,000 bills and a $100,000 bill. But um, the highest bill that they had was a talent. It was worth 20 years' worth of wages. It was very much. And 10,000 was the largest number that there was a Greek word for. So it's the largest numbers worth of the largest denomination of currency that we have. That's how much this one owed the king, his master. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, which wouldn't nearly cover it, but that's, he's going to get as much as he can out of them. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That was... Um, if you make $40,000 a year, it'd be like forgiving an $8 billion debt. Okay? That's a lot. Or, or something that would take 200,000 years to pay off with your average wage. Okay? Forgive. Forgive. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. One denarii is how much you make in one day. So 100 denarii is like a third of your yearly salary. So if you make $40,000, like this person owes the other person 15 grand. So it's not like a few bucks. It's, it's a big debt. Not relatively to the 10,000 talents, but it's big. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you almost the exact same words that he said moments before to the king. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. I wish BSV didn't say jailers. It literally means torturers. He delivered him over to the torturers until he should pay all of his debt, which would take 100,000 years, whatever. Like, it's going to be forever. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Dang. I love that it says forgive your brother from your heart. It's not just lip service. I kind of have to give you, but it actually means something. So here's the point. If you can't forgive your brother or sister for the things that 
he or she has done against you, you don't understand how great the forgiveness of God is and how great your sin is in your debt. And if you don't believe how great your sin is and what it cost God to cover your debt, then you'll have to pay for your own debt, which you'll be paying for 200,000 years. I was trying to think, like, how could how can we know and talk about how great our our sin debt is with God, or was, I should say, for us who believe. And when we, like, sin, I was thinking of this, when we sin against each other, we could maybe even list some of those out and come up with, like, a tally. Well, I lied to you this one time, and you did this to me, and you owed a little bit to me, but now I owe a little bit to you, and you hurt me a little, and I hurt you. Like, we could, we could kind of, I mean, feasibly keep track of some of that. And that's, that's like the denarii amount. It might be significant. Maybe we've been really hurt by another person really sinned against that they never did anything to you, whatever it is. But this is a sin, me against you. In contrast, every sin that we commit, regardless of who it's against, is against God. Um... David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. So our perfect God sets us up in a perfect world, and he tells us the perfect way to live. And with every sin that we do, we give perfect God the finger, and we run up our debt to an uncountable amount. Not just with the couple of times that I sinned against you, but also the times I sinned against you, times that I sinned maybe against myself, or I sinned against other people, I sinned in my mind. All of that is racking up, and is 10,000 talents, not just the denarii between us, but is what we owe against the Lord. In fact, we're even, besides the sins, that we, the individual sins that we commit, we're born into sins, the condition of our heart when we come into this world, and We've run up an uncountable total. And if you can't, the point of this parable, I think, if you can't forgive your brother for the the smaller amount, the, the almost infinitely smaller amount, maybe infinitely, then you don't understand the, the grace of God. <clears throat> and then the harsh part, again, comes in here in verse 34. In his anger, the master who represents God, the Father, delivered him, this servant, to the jailers or the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And so will my Heavenly Father do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Now you might think that that sounds like kind of harsh, like some of this other stuff that we've listened to. Man, God, he can really let you have it. But there's something in this parable that's going on behind the scenes that we don't see that Jesus doesn't talk about at this point. People didn't know that it was going to happen. But what this parable doesn't talk about is the 10,000 talents worth of, of debt-free forgiveness that God offers isn't just like wipe it off the books like it never happened, but it cost God something, and what it took to get rid of that debt, that 10,000 talents times 7 billion or 20 billion, how many people have lived in the world, that debt, in order for that to be canceled for those who believe it cost God sending his own son into slavery, his own son into death and into uh, suffering. And so the forgiveness that the king was offering, the forgiveness that the father offers, isn't just this easy, okay, I, 
I'll forgive you that eight billion dollars, but it's no, I'm going to pay for that myself with the life of my son. And so again, I think it comes back to he loves his children so much. He doesn't want anything between us. He provides an infinite amount of debt forgiveness of everything that we owe against him. So you guys see, like, even though we're talking about some, like, harsh things, man, that person should be drowned in the depth of the sea. You should chop off your arm and cut out your hand or cut out your eye and you should, you know, present this to the church and all of these things and this person will be tortured for... It's... This isn't a comment on the harshness of God. It's a comment on the effect of our sin, which limits our humble trust of God, and it limits our faith. And so what we see here is that God loves us so much that he says, I'm not going to let anything come between you. Don't, don't ever cause anybody to sin, because that, that, brings, that puts something in between us. I'm not going to let that happen. If you stray, I'm going to go after you. In fact, if you stray, I'm going to send the church after you, and they're going to be a part of that process. I'm offering forgiveness of this infinite debt if you will just understand and receive that. So I think this is a beautiful comment, not on how harsh God is and how crazy he calls us to live, but how good he is and how he loves us and how he wants to remove the things out of our life that hurt us and keep us from him. So just to end, um, here's how God interacts with people like us who have sin problems. He goes after them and he forgives them. He goes searching for the sheep that's gone astray, he rejoices when it returns, and then he offers an unfathomable amount of forgiveness. We are to do the same thing. We help return to the fold those people who are going astray, rejoicing when they return, and then we are called also, like the Father, to offer uncountable amounts of forgiveness again and again and again. And if you can imagine, I think that that will really stand out. If we take these, if we take confronting sin and love and gentleness and, and, uh, and hopes of restoration, if we take that seriously, if we take lavish forgiveness seriously, like, can you guys just imagine what, what that community would look like? And, and they work together, right? You, you, this works because you know, oh, if I return to this family, if I return to the Lord, if I repent of my sin, well, I'm going to receive forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. It works. They work hand in hand together. And and that kind of thing, I don't think happens outside of the church. I, I, I it, It's hard for that to happen inside the church because we don't like to deal with um, with sin so so strictly, and we have a, we have trouble forgiving so often. Um, but I, it would be I, I see signs of this in our church of taking sin seriously. I see a lot of forgiveness time and time again and how we've stuck together through different things. And so I'm not saying that we're not doing this, but man, if we can grow in this and enact some of these things, we'll display the character of the Father so well.